Did you know Joseph Heller titled his book Catch 18, but his editor arbitrarily changed it to Catch 22? Well, for as long as I can remember, that's what being alive has felt like. Can't have form without space. Can't experience light without dark. We're stuck. Yeah. And any time you try to hold on to one thing, slips away. I've never been able to describe this feeling inside of me, but I think that's it. Catch 22. It's like a void. But not, it's like empty, but solid. Yes, empty, but solid. Right under the surface. You think other people feel this way? I know George doesn't. I hope June never does. Oh no. Maybe we're not normal. Maybe we're too fucked up. Maybe normal people are just delusional, fucked up people. <gasps> Either way, that's why I don't believe in God. What do you mean? Why would a God make it like this? Well, if God is everything, then we're God. That means God is just like us. Maybe that's why everything is the way it is. God's just trying not to feel alone in nothingness. You have never talked to anybody like this before. Me neither. I think we're dying. I think so too. Happy hair season. Welcome to the desert of the real. You just heard a clip from the intense, irreverent, and darkly humorous Netflix series, The Beef. The two protagonists are not in the desert of the real, but in the wilderness, sharing gnosis as the story climaxes, and they seemingly face the womb of death, which is also the womb of life. Good show, superb acting, and tragic storytelling. The Beef seems to be a pattern I've seen with other recent shows and films. That is, millennials finally coming to their senses and realizing the dice were loaded from the start. The simulation just sucks. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. The promises of Silicon Valley technocrats that the internet would democratize the world and social media would bring us together was a lie. The promises of politicians that an inclusive world was possible if we just sacrifice our individuality and much of our paychecks was a lie. The promise of influencers and media experts that the way to be happy was through material delight and digital adventures was, yes, a lie. They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and uh, his physiology even and so making him 
actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be, in some ways, happy under the new uh, regime. Instagram food pictures or Amazon Prime or traveling to Iceland or Uber rides or craft tap beer at work or free porn ain't gonna make you fulfilled. It was all a lie. And now I hope millennials notice the Archons laughing above the polluted horizons as civilization collapses and their collective consciousness rots under the infection of alien mind parasites. You did the most important thing. You bought something. What? You bought something. With money. God, I love money so much, Morty. Are you being sarcastic? Merchandise, Morty. Your only purpose in life is to buy and consume merchandise, and you did it. It's bad. No one is coming to save you. You can't vote, comment on social, or chipotle your way out of this catch-22. This cosmic Chinese finger trap. You were hoodwinked. You are being harvested for food with sriracha sauce. The mine-forged manacles of William Blake tighten so fast, and you realize you can check out anytime you want but you can never leave. You were lied to. It's time to accept that there is only one logical pivot, and that is the Gnostic heresy. It's time to go inward and rise higher than ever before, raging against heaven and storming the gates of hell for your misplaced childhood and paradise is lost. It's time to exercise those alien mind parasites. Escadet says there are minor gods called Archons, who can cross a threshold. Supposedly, when they enter our world, they must inhabit a human body, which is a vessel. As Whitley Strieber wrote in The Danger Being Right, it's time for us to wake up and face the truth that we are a captive species on a prison planet. But the fact that we are so close to understanding the science of our imprisonment means that we are also just beginning to touch the keys that locks the door. And if we are strong, if we defy and defeat the sinister forces that rule us now, we have a chance at last to unlock this place and do what we are able to do, that we are richly capable of doing that those who love us, and they are out there too, have hoped and sought that we should do from time immemorial. When I looked out over this land, I only saw the freedom it promised. I knew nothing of the horror that hides in freedom's shadow. So welcome you millennials and every other generation ready to write your own gospel and live your own myth. Welcome to Aeon Bite. We don't take prisoners but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. A shining crazy diamond that can do so many wonders. Divided we stand, together we rise. My name is Miguel Connor. The meat sack incarnation of some god who forgot who he was, just like you are. Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? 
I'm in the nature of you. But all learning is remembering, Plato said. You gotta get in to get out, Peter Gabriel sang in The Carpet Crawlers. And you of the broken places know that the Gnostic way is the way out, and it's way out. It's also often considered part of the left-hand path. That's what we'll cover in this eternal now. We have the pleasure of being joined at the Virtual Alexandria by Shay Biele to discuss his new book, Friedrich Nietzsche and the Left-Hand Path, The Overman, Nihilism, and the Satanic Milieu. Well, God's got him now. <laughs> what about his adversary? Huh? Relentless, feisty, you know, whispering in our ears at every waking moment. Huh? Great book that delivers many red pill suppositories up those rectums of reality. And that reality, as millennials are finding out, just ain't what it's cracked up to be, unless those red pill suppositories crack real nice. Will our clips explode? As a bonus for all subs, beyond the full interview, I'll include a clip from my chat with scholar and Gnostic seeker, Raj Ayar who focuses more on the parallels of Nietzsche and Gnostic thought. Brilliant conversation, too, and consider this a mini-course on Nietzsche's useful esoteric ideas. Don't miss it. He who looks into the abyss realizes that there's nothing looking back at him. The only thing he sees is his own character, Ricky. You understand, bud? The abyss? the shit abyss we've all been hoodwinked and now it's time to play the trickster on the creator gods and their karens and catamites in the establishment shay's message of complete luciferian freedom is a clarion call to kindle the power of our divine spark escape the black iron prison of the demiurge and his epstein angels could it be Satan to my wedding? Well, he's changed. Speaking of the left-hand path, I like what Stephen Flowers wrote. It goes, He or she is bound to break the cosmic laws of nature and to break the conventional social laws imposed by ignorance and intolerance. But in doing so, the left-hand path practitioner seeks a higher law of reality founded on knowledge and power. Although beyond good and evil, this path requires the most rigorous of ethical standards. These standards are based on understanding and not on blind obedience to external authorities. Gain a permanent, independent, enlightened, and empowered level of being, which is exactly what we're all trying to do. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skylar. I am the danger. And as I say, the reward for this hard path, the left-hand path of the Gnostics and other spiritual entrepreneurs, is to remember you are God all along. The Gnostic story can be simplified too. God went crazy and became us. The Talmud says God needs us more than we need Him. And as the English mystic William Law wrote, 
God created man to redeem the realm of the fallen angels, which is where we find ourselves. Simple as that. You make dogs die when they eat chocolate. You know, Don Jr., testicles, that's terrible design. You know, you've had some bad ideas in the past. Let us end with an actual passage from Joseph Heller's Catch-22 on Yaldi Baldi himself. There's nothing mysterious about it. He's not working at all. He's playing. Or else he's forgotten all about us. That's the kind of God you people talk about. A country bumpkin. A clumsy, bungling, brainless, conceited, uncouth hayseed. Good God, how much reverence can you have for a supreme being who finds it necessary to include such phenomena as phlegm and tooth decay in his divine system of creation? What in the world was running through that warped, evil, scatological mind of his when he robbed old people of power to control their bowel movements? Why in the world did he even create pain? Nipples for men! The Empire never ended. What is it you really want? I don't want a thing. I want something that doesn't exist. Then tell us what it is. There's a void inside of me. You, everyone, an endless abyss. And everything you collect, every success, everything you take to shrink that void down, none of it works. It's like a... Like a black hole. Everyone has a black hole inside of them. What I want is for mind to stop eating everything up all the time this is the aeon bide interview and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by shay belay to discuss his book friedrich nietzsche and the left hand path the overman nihilism and the satanic milieu shay thank you very much for coming on the show it's a pleasure to be here brother thank you so much pleasure is all mine so as I always like to ask, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your descent into heresy. I would say the only way you could go lower is probably Gnosticism, because even uh, <laughs> Bishop Irenaeus in the second century said that the Gnostics were worse than Satan, because at least Satan could appreciate the Father's universe, and the Gnostics weren't even going to give him that. But anyway, tell us about your path into the esoterica. Well, I guess in, in that context, the demiurge might go a little deeper, right? I guess you, you alluded <laughs> to that. Yeah. Well, the, you know, my, my path started um, with, you know, I had a, my mother was a bit of a, a, a mystic of a sort. She was still within the Catholic paradigm, but she often discussed past lives and she was something of a self-proclaimed medium and very spiritualist in that sense. And often talking about spirits and those things. So I had an interest in the supernatural very young. My initial exposure to the world is the supernatural. I was about four years old and I woke up suddenly with a feeling of suffocating. And 
everything that aligns with the what they would call the hag attack or what they call sleep paralysis demons today, right? But what they used to call the hag attack, this woman at the ed- edge of the bed. But in my case, it was this black sphere of energy hanging seven or eight feet above the the, the walkway into the bedroom. And faces were emerging, this horrific faces or laughing faces of faces I knew and some I didn't falling and rising within this sphere. And I passed out. I was four years out. I didn't understand what I encountered. I just, uh, I knew that it was something impactful. And I, I, I knew very early on that there is some type of world we don't, that is beyond the ostensible. It's beyond the mere appearances. So that kind of started thing off, uh, things off. And I, I started into an actual study of the occult in my early at- adolescence. And, you know, where I where I grew up was in a pretty shady part of Los Angeles. And in the early 90s, uh, mid 90s, things were pretty bad in, in LA at that time, anyone who's there. And some of the some of the Christian adjacent morality of Wicca wasn't quite working. I was seeing a lot of struggle around me. I was seeing a lot of kind of aggression and violence all around me. And it didn't seem to explain what it didn't seem it's it's padding did not seem to explain the world that I that I was growing up around and that I was in and that I was thrown into. And uh, when I became aware of Satanism through the Satanic Bible, which many Satanists do, uh, you know, now it's kind of changed because of the world of the Internet. So people are coming into Satanism and Luciferianism in different ways. But like it or not, that was the the outlet at the time was the Satanic Bible. And it resonated with me, spoke of a world of tragedy. It spoke of a world of of warring forces and opposing forces and not in a dial, not in a not in a uh, diametric sense, not not necessarily in an oppositional sense, but in a dialectical sense that there is the laws of nature and and that that it is a sense of a Dionysian tragedy at work. And so that resonated with me. And since then, um, into my adulthood, I've my writings, uh, my lectures, I've, I've lectured in the United States and beyond and written and, and focused a lot of my work in ritual performance and music and poetry. All of it has come together. All of my work has come together to talk about the history and the impact and the origination of Satanism, Luciferianism, the left-hand path, it is, it is, a, it is a path that has liberated me, um, as I kind of alluded to, it, and it's a path that I have dedicated my life to. So, And that has brought me to discuss, you know, to, to write the book uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and the Left-Hand Path. It is a testament to looking for that history and that bedrock and the foundation to a controversial religion that many seek to... Uh, to look for uh, it, it, it historically, but often come up short sometimes. So I am I am merely lending my uh, my my ability to to bring that to light. Awesome. Yes, I enjoyed your book. I learned a lot, and I like how you yeah you tie things in historically, and uh, we certainly want to unpack that. Well, for the audience, they might be asking, what is the left hand path? So the the left hand path is a a bit of a quagmire of a term, or it doesn't come without its without its uh, kind of difficulties in 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 the term itself. So on one side, it's useful for us because it can explain a contemporary phenomena of religiosity and paths. So the left hand path 
encompasses uh, everything from Satanism to Luciferianism to some Vedic expressions. That's where it originally, the term left-hand path comes from tantric Vedic practice. Um, the Agori, as, as many might be familiar with, that's that's oh, where the yeah. that's where that term, but it was adopted by Blavatsky in the late 19th century, and it came to be associated with the Black Lodge. They always talked about this hidden kind of satanic black lodge <laughs> that practice dark magic and that's Very where we, twin peaks <laughs> that right exactly and that's where uh and that's where the term left hand path is is has been expressing itself in western esotericism it it came from from it seeding from the uh southeast asia from from blavatsky so it does describe that umbrella of of religious phase and that's where it's useful where it isn't useful is people think of the left-hand path in a moral attribution, uh, as in, oh, you know, the left-hand path practices baneful magic or black magic. And they think of black magic as curses or uh, manipul- manipulative magic and things like that. Well, that's not, that's not particularly useful, especially in the contemporary milieu, because you hear, you see a fle- uh, flexibility happening in the world of witchcraft across the board. So you'll see people that who were called the right-hand path, like Wiccans talking about um, rituals for vengeance or rituals for accumulation of empowerment and in and, and different ways and getting a, and you hear about traditional witchcraft that goes back to the old days of witchcraft where you're looking for a suitor or a suitor has left you and you're jealous. So you, you know, you pin a, a frog to a tree in order to kill his new lover to bring him back. And then you hear people on the left-hand path discussing compassion or Satanists discussing uh, devotion or the idea of supplication. So um, in that sense, left-hand, the left-hand path as a moral attribution or discussing morality is no longer useful. Uh, but like I said, as an umbrella of religious faith, it, it, it serves us better. Yeah, I would say so too. I mean, I don't have you read uh Stephen Flowers' book on the left hand path? He's pretty broad. I mean, he includes Sufism, the assassins, uh basically anything esoteric that focuses on the individual instead of the collective. So Yeah, Dr. Flowers is a seminal figure and the he's one of the first to really dig into the academic study and scholarly study of the left hand path. And he was one of the first to really put it together in his book, Lords of the Left-Hand Path. I relied upon his research quite a bit in Friedrich Nietzsche and the Left-Hand Path because he was one of the early ones to also draw that connection. So um, high respect to Dr. Flowers and his work. Um, It's been instrumental to, to the to the world to in better understanding of, of yeah yeah love his work he's been a guest three or four times on the show i always love what he has to say and he yeah he goes deep so why don't we talk about satanism and that's one of those uh shay those words what do you call it a polysemous word a word like uh gnosticism or paganism sure. it's a word that as soon as we say it Everybody has a different definition, and the definition changes depending on the context of the conversation, right? Oh, my God, my computer's being satanic. (laughs) Then I can change that the context five minutes later when talking about Anthony LaVey. So it's one of those words that we have to nail down. And I love you quote uh, Jespar Peterson, and he talks about three heuristic categories to define modern Satanism, and that's rationalist esoteric and reactive so we're talking about basically the atheistic satanism right some of it so those 
So if you look at the rational or rationalist, uh, yeah, that was Dr. Pedersen, who uh, I also acknowledge him in the book as well. His his scholarly work was also groundbreaking. But uh, yeah, they they broke it down into three, as you mentioned. The rationalist refers to the Levain school and those related to it. So there's certain groups that exist today that sort of see Satan as symbolic and having a metaphorical meaning as a symbol of emancipation, liberation, science, intelligence, intellectualism, uh, the adversary. So they they view Satan as a symbol and something to draw meaning and purpose from. Now, that is not to... LeVay was a bad LeVayan. So <laughs> one, one note I'll add to that, just like Marx said, I'm not a Marxist, and Christ right. might say I'm not a Christian, right? So yeah. LeVay wasn't a very good LeVayan in that LeVay flexed what the modern, what the contemporary Church of Satan today, how comfortable they would be discussing mysticism and discussing phenomena, spiritual phenomena. LeVay was very loose with it. So although he, on one side, one edge of his mouth, talked about atheism and and criticized faith, on another, he discussed manifestations of spirits and uh, he he called what he called diabolical uh, machinations or the the strange phenomena that magic affects reality in a very real way. So, you know, LeVay was incredibly mystical. He sometimes contradicted himself when discussing forces. Um, he would sometimes refer to Satan as a force. So it's important when we discuss rationalism, when we discuss LeVay, that LeVay's ontological belief in Satan or how he his metaphysical belief in Satan was actually far more complex than people like to make it. But that's one section. So the other is esoteric. So esoteric, the first to kind of bring out that category was Michael Aquino. Mm-hmm. And he diversed himself from the Church of Satan in the mid-70s. And he would more embrace the Prince of Darkness, as he called it. So Satan as a as a more objective, literal being. And then so all the schools that have come from that. And then you have reactive. This is the inverted crosses in the in the in the in the churchyard uh, at midnight on a Saturday, black metal, and <laughs> let's spray paint the local church, and it's 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 a sensationalistic form of Satanism that I think is actually becoming less popular. That is to say, um, I think even that form of Satanism has grown up, and you have you know even within black metal with bands like Watain which has went into this devotional expression of their of their Satanism, uh, things have changed there too. So uh, you don't really see that much like, fuck you, mom and dad, I'm going to worship <laughs> the devil. Like you don't really see that that much anymore. And plus Satanism isn't as scary as it was 30 years ago, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't have that effect now in some places it does, but not always anymore. Things are changing, you know. Yeah, that is true. And uh, as you write, too, at, at the core, we can say that Satan himself as a symbol, as an archetypal image, he's uh, he represents self-actualization, right? He is what tells us to push us to the best version of ourselves, the truest version of ourselves. Yeah, I think that's one of the, you know, one of the powerful images that came out of the Enlightenment. And you saw in the um, you know, in the in the romantic poets of the 19th century, discussing Satan as this romantic figure, or even Milton discussing uh, Lucifer falling from heaven and, and going this righteous war 
for what he believes in. So, uh, and even a, you see, a, you see a lot of the workers' parties and some of the workers' movements of the of the 19th century also embrace Satan as a symbol of the workers' party. Um, God protects the nobility. God protects the wealthy um, and the princely and the kingly. Satan is the one who understands the daily toils of man and tragedy and what we must go through when we struggle. He understands the downtrodden. And that isn't something modern. That actually goes back, you know, you see in the 15th century and 16th century, some of these old court records of criminals who uh, admitted worshiping Satan because they said, Satan protects, I'm already lost. So Satan protects me. So some of these brigands and thieves, much like Santa Muerte, is celebrated by some of the narcos um the it's seen as you know the church doesn't so much speak to me but santo muerte the 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 priestess of death or the saint of death will embrace me in my dire time so satan has a similar appeal and has for hundreds of years no it makes sense. possibly thousands actually possibly thousands. i would say thousands because you're talking about magic spells and i'm gonna curse this this is something that was happening it wasn't black magic it was folk magic that people in villages did and uh satan became sort of a folk trickster in their lives even when you study the blues satan is a big part of that art form because he is sort of the he's helping the blacks in the diaspora he's giving them talent he's a play you know he's it's a double-edged sword but yeah, you see Satan is more or less this sort of folk hero or trickster right. that'll help, like you said, the downtrodden, the poor. Yeah, these it's actually interesting. We're talking about how far back it may go. Well, we're looking at the earliest. We see the first time it's written about the idea of Satanism is actually a, a Greek writer discusses. He says there are those who meet and this is the first century CE, there are those who meet in the mountain at night and they, they at the top of the hill and in, in robes, and they have decided that they would rather cast themselves in opposition to God and seek refuge in him. Uh, and they are called the, the Satanists. So there we see going back roughly 2000 years, as soon as we see Satan beginning to become this universal principle of evil. So as those early theologians started kind of working backwards, because many don't know Satan just Satan kind of was a negotiation, a mediation that occurred among theologian scholars. Um, Because in the old Testament and older uh, Hebraic writings, um, you saw Satan. there was a collection of demons, right? There was Baal and, and Belial and, and, you know, uh, Azazel and, they, you know, eventually by the second century CE, they brought all of them together to be this Satan became the universal principle um, of evil. So as soon as that was happening, there were people writing about that some prefer his company. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, it's a it's a tantalizing archetype that exists in cultures that we are drawn as humans, right? I mean, whether it's a uh, uh, was it Phaeton who falls, who rides Ap- Apollo's chariot too close to the sun, or Icarus, Sophia falling from the Pleroma, uh, Prometheus being chained? Uh, we mm-hmm. see this in all myths Cain. and culture. Yeah. yeah, this fallen person. 
because he decides he's going to go against the grain. He's going to help the little guy and he's just not going to be part of the collective. So it's uh, it's there. It's within us, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I uh, you mentioned a couple of figures there, Prometheus, uh, Lucifer, uh, you know, uh, I, we could also bring up Cain. And a lot of those, I mentioned those in the book because uh, Nietzsche recognized a few of those figures. Uh, Prometheus kind of carried the, the Lucifer, but he talked about Dionysus, which in many ways was his Satan. And I, I devote the first chapter of the book to discussing that comparison of, you know, Nietzsche's Dionysus and the romantic Satan. But a lot of these characters would come together in the, in the 19th century and, and kind of formulate that but speaking to that natural flow that's something i think is fascinating um i see when i when people ask me how do you conceive of of satan and i almost have no limits as, as how i do that but one of the ways is i see satan as the great initiator so in in the left hand path we talk about the black flame of initiation and it's this it's this kind of self-realization, the self-empowerment, this drive that rests within the blood and the core of the practitioner and the enacting of the will, or as the, you know, Crowley would discuss the Thelemic will mm-hmm. with a cap, uh, capital W, do as the will. So there's this, there's this black flame that drives action. And I think of when that moment, billions of years ago on earth, when inorganic life, which we still don't fully understand. We've made some cutting edge uh, breakthroughs in science, but we still don't understand how you got material, uh, essentially uh, minerals that came together and became uh, organic life. We still don't know that trigger. To me, that was, you know, one of the great rebellions of minerals into life, that click. And then from single cellular into multicellular, we still don't fully understand how that happened. Uh, We believe there was this complex uh, consumption of one cell, which then became, which then worked kind of together and became this uh, shared kind of being and became one over time. And then this is how multicellular life came. But if we go further back, uh, what we think is the Big Bang, things may change, but what we think is the Big Bang in established science right now, that initial click, that initial start, um, that is a rebellion from darkness into infinite light, uh, from inorganic into organic, from prokaryotic life into eukaryotic life. And then in every uh, in every protest, in every rebellion, in every upheaval of every government, I believe the satanic force rests at the heart of that. And it's something very powerful and it's something in nature. I wouldn't necessarily liken it to something like Nietzsche's will to power, but I would certainly say that it is this kind of natural force um, and speak of it in a similar way as Nietzsche would speak of his will to power. So there is, as you say, there's something innate within us that carries that. Oh, yeah, and beautifully said. Really appreciate it. Uh, before we, we move on a little bit, I wanted you also mention these are kind of hot topic uh, subjects, but we should definitely address them. You say that the principles of Malthusian pessimism and social Darwinism are central to modern Satanism. What are those, just for the audience? Okay, so the we have to break it 
a part of it. So the modern Satanism, I'm really talking, I'm really speaking to that initial kind of Levian philosophy mm-hmm. of the of the mid to late 60s. So that initial incarnation of modern Satanism. Now there was some example of, examples of it that came before, but we can perhaps we could discuss that another time. But sure. uh, so when I say modern Satanism, I speak to that. That does not mean modern Satanism as Satanism today. That is the ethical foundation. I'm merely speaking to the Levian philosophy and how it was influenced. So the social Darwinism speaks to a sense of elitism by a meritocracy. So we are judging people based on their merit and their output and their capability and their performance. And so social Darwinism sees an evolution based on character, based based on merit. Um, and that rests as a, as a core of the Levain philosophy, that idea of the law of nature, the law of the swift, only the strong survive kind of thing. The other, the Malthusian pessimism is... Uh, Thomas Malthus discussed the critiqued our growing uh, the growing population and talked about a dire future that would come from endless propagation and shortcomings of the industrial time and resources. And so pessimism in that there is a limited amount of resources. I think um, actually Dr. Flowers puts it very eloquently. Um, and it comes to mind at this moment, and that is Satanism acknowledges an implicit limitation of resources and endorses the acquisition of them. So it's this idea that there's only so much, and the Satanist is endorses a acquisition of what he can and an acquisition of power. That rests in the Levian model of Satanism. Now, there's many Satanists who do not follow that obviously there's very humanistic satanists there's very there's satanists that believe in you know that subscribe to game theory and uh humanistic compassion and things like that um and you know i tend to lean more towards that side than the levain ethical uh model but at the same time i see power in that i see i see power in this sense of assessing oneself honestly i think the lesson to be learned from it is not necessarily strike down and do what you have to do to succeed there's a lot of corporate ceos that would uh-huh. secret that would secretly endorse this philosophy of social darwinism and malthusian pessimism of course they do it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's in the employee manual right so <laughs> uh so that's nothing special that's nothing but what i could say that we can view in that is acknowledge that the world can be tragic and difficult and acknowledge that sometimes no one's going to help you and you can't rely upon it. So dig within yourself that power uh, to, to survive and to thrive. Um, I think that's a, le- that's an important lesson for all of us. It doesn't necessarily mean step on others to do it. Um, but certainly there's a lesson to be learned that, uh, you know, we live with tragedy around us and there is nothing, you know, you have to call upon yourself in order to survive. Exactly. Nobody's coming to save you. That's a mistake. Other religions do. And uh, yeah, and uh, for the sixties, it makes perfect sense. Cause obviously evolution would tell us these days, it's not the strong who survive. It's the adaptable. So uh, we learn as, as, as times goes on another subject to share, we should talk about. And that is of, uh, 
nihilism. And uh, you quote Nietzsche saying uh, he summarizes nihilism as the, <laughs> I love the way he, he writes, as a <laughs> radical repudiation of value, meaning, and desirability, quote, and the highest values devaluate themselves. To avoid the coming wow. tribulations that follow the destruction of heaven, we are called to invoke a positive nihilism and affirming nihilism, a Dionysian nihilism, so that we might betray a life de denying passive ideology with grieves an illusionary and poisonous ideal. <laughs> it's just awesome, man. <laughs> so you saw the, there are two types of nihilism, right? <laughs> sure, sure. So, well... It, it it depends on you know who you might ask, but certainly Nietzsche identified he identified a few, but the main um, and I have to say his you know it's no surprise that his explosive writing would inspire movements throughout the world and throughout history. Why he made waves was because of how poetic and how explosive and incendiary he, he was um, and eloquent, but. Yeah, so he identified active and passive nihilism. So he saw he saw he saw what what was happening was that um with Platonism, with Plato and, and with Neoplatonism, and then what was adopted with Christianity is that there was a celebration of the ideal. So what you saw with the old Greek tragedies is you saw in the you saw this, you know an actor kind of making uh discussing the the pains of the world how the kind of farcical aspects of life making fun of the politic making fun of our you know our efforts to oppose nature and mm -hmm. nature wills out so you saw he saw the greek tragedy as being a an acceptance of the the hardest parts of the world and and facing it but finding a way to affirm life and to accept this tragedy and not to make excuses for it. Well, we saw what happened with Socrates and Plato and this idea of the forms and this idea of the, uh, the, the paradiso, the heavenly. And, you know, Christianity would obviously go to the idea of the divine and definitely draw a demarcation between physicality and material and the heavenly. He saw that as um, written within that seeking of perfection it was going to destroy itself. So the highest values devaluing themselves. So he very much saw an aspect of us killing God. That is to say that the ideal over the course of the centuries, our seeking of perfection would then materialize in a scientific way. And in that seeking of absolute truth, God himself would be killed in that process. And so now what was the center of culture, everything from who you prayed to in marriage, to who you prayed to when you slept, to who the kings prayed to, mm -hmm. to who made the kings, to who dictated where you went, where how you were born and where you went with you died. And even if you died at birth where you went, that was that God was no longer at the center. So every crop that was successful and every crop that failed, every um, dangerous weather and, and the beautiful, no matter how things went, illness and health, that no longer belonged to God anymore. So the death of God then meant we no longer have this central edifice of meaning. We no longer have this arbiter of meaning. And that had to Nietzsche very um, dangerous kind of implications. 
That meant that we would seek for meaning elsewhere. So he saw passive nihilism as the uh, seeing that there's no meaning and not and responding to it by um, taking prescribed meaning or responding to it by what he called narcotization. So looking for entertainments, um, looking for substances, looking for way, uh, even taking political ideals and worshiping those he saw as forms of passive nihilism. That is looking for something that doesn't speak to the truth of, of our world and to the truths of, of tragedy. Um, active nihilism uh, expresses itself as destroying those old, kind of identifying that there's no meaning in these structures, destroying them and looking for a way to find new meaning or affirming meaning um, that is forged from oneself and not prescribed to you. So not denying reality, accepting for it for what it is, destroying those these vestiges of meaning that are prescribed and really carry no meaning according to Nietzsche, and then finding that meaning within yourself, seeking that Dionysian affirmation. So uh, yeah, those are those are the two kinds. But he also talked about, you know, practical nihilism, which is someone who takes nihilism to the point of killing themselves. Um, you know, he discusses theoretical nihilism, which is this kind of this idea of philosophical nihilism. So really, yeah, really the book seeks to find where active nihilism aligns with with the left-hand path. Yeah, and I agree with you when you write uh, that there is certainly religious or even Christian nihilism, and these examples are uh, the Sabbatian movement, the Gnostics, Brethren of the Free Spirit, Anabaptism, Branch Davidians, and Islamic State. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know no, the Gnostics certainly toyed with the nihilism and existentialism, and the same with those other groups that sort of go against the grain, destroyed former structures, uh, bring out this charge, passion, and sort of rewrite reality. So uh, it's it's yeah, you can't have a religious nihilism. Yeah, you know, I when uh, I went to Belgium to do my graduate studies in philosophy, and there was um, the reason I was attracted to this university in Leuven, Belgium is because one of the professors there was talking about religious nihilism and I didn't know what it was at the time. And he was trying to find a way. It was actually Gershom Sholem, the Jewish scholar um, who did, who did a lot of the work on uh, Kabbalah and, and actually he's the foremost kind of primary scholar in that, in that domain. And he was the first to coin the term religious nihilism. And that is, you know, these this phenomena within religion that seeks a kind of self-destructive force or even a uh, destruction of of the Godhead. So in the case of the Gnostics um, and Hans Jonas discussed this in his Gnostic religion, he talked about uh, he talked about the idea that, you know, Gnostics sought a god outside of this world so our 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 god is not our god is not from this world there's actually the one who created this world is actually a tyrant um yadabaoth right so there's so it's it's nihilistic in the sense that we are seeking a kind of an unmaking we're seeking a world outside of creation um and we're almost seeing a death of this world 
and for the um, for the uh, for the Sabbateans or the Frankists who saw that you know it it happened when the messianic expression of of Kabbalah in the 18th century um, saw a Messiah born, and then he had to he was converted forcibly by Muslims. And so in that conversion, they saw that the Messiah, that within this messianic cult, this, this Jewish mystical cult, the Messiah had converted, had done the ultimate sin and converted to Islam. Mm-hmm. And so there was a small fraction of those believers who thought that, well, if the Messiah is God in, in, in human form and God himself dictates the greatest sin, then perhaps the inversion of the Torah is how we affirm God's will. So you saw the Frankist movement actually sought to uh, heresy and um, sexual heresy and destruction of the Torah and burning of the Torah because they thought that was the only way to reach God. (laughs) So (laughs) it, it was through heresy and actually inversion of God that you find a a union with it. So those are some of the themes within religious nihilism. And I do tie that into uh, Satanism and the left-hand path. Yeah. And you see that all throughout history, the Persian Mazdakites, the sort of the, the Gnostic Carpocratians and Borberites, the sort of salvation through transgression, going right. down into the shadow world and you know, uh, in integrating the demons and the shadow side of yourself. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> it's just yeah. There's right. There's there there is certainly something to say that the you know, and I talk th- about this a little bit in the book. The idea of crazy zen. So you see it in some mm-hmm. Buddhistic camps where the idea you cannot understand the boundaries of your your ethical boundaries until one transgresses them so you can't understand your faith until you understand the boundaries and what that means so there's there's a power in transgression and there's a power in antinomianism Um, this doesn't mean simply breaking laws to to be violent or whatever else and to be an edgelord hey yeah (laughs) (laughs) and who knows that 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 has its place in society. Um, I'm not saying it's something necessary or desired. I'm just saying nature all this time is going to have that aspect that is purely chaotic and purely violent. Um, but I think there is something productive in understanding one's boundaries to affirm them. Um, I think a lot of us, as we, you know, I think many people, this is just a normal human experience is as you get older, you understand, well, I did that and I know I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, or I've been there, or after that first marriage, <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> what I want, right? So yeah. there's an idea of transgression carrying that type of transformative power. Yeah, I mean, children are supposed to uh, challenge the boundaries. Uh, Plotinus writes, the souls come to this world because they rebel. They're just, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, exploring, pushing the boundaries, uh, learning hard lessons, and Satan is the biggest one of them all, right? He had to learn big time, <laughs> according to the myth and uh, these other characters, Prometheus, whatever. Yeah, they they push the boundaries. You know, the saying, uh, "Fuck around and find out." They, fuck around they and find out. They yeah. represent that in a cosmic level. 
I guess that answered my question whether I can cuss on your show. Yeah, yeah, well, we don't. <laughs> Feel no, free. We no, don't. We don't. There don't was censor. <laughs> there was a uh when i was in belgium i was studying i was there for about a year and a half and it's actually where a lot of the germination of this 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 book that we're discussing now came to be mm-hmm. and i you know shortly before i left and came back to the states um to, to be a while i saw i i figured out that there was the lucifer of liege it's a statue that is housed in the cathedral in a city called Liège. It's on the eastern part of Belgium. And I thought, well, before I leave, I got to go. That's that statue. I see it yeah. everywhere. I see it in cheap little JPEGs on people's cover on their <laughs> on their Facebook page. And I see it, you know, I've seen it all over the place. I didn't know that that statue was, I'd read about it. I didn't know it was in Liège. And so I made a trip there. And fortunately, I had someone with me because I don't know any French. And um you know i feel like i feel i it felt very difficult with the very little french i knew i felt that um it was going to come out more as an insult if i tried rather than (laughs) rather than did me any good so fortunately i had someone who knew a little bit of french and i i got to the cathedral in the center of town and it's it's the statue is hidden on this kind of central dais there's this these twin kind of uh circular or spiral staircases and on the opposite side of it. So kind of facing more like facing a wall almost is, is the Lucifer statue. And it's about, it's about five feet or so. Um, It's actually, it's actually shorter than I thought. Uh, It's about five and a half feet, but it is a gorgeous statue. In fact, um, I one of the things that was interesting about it is that no matter where you stood, it looked as if it was facing you. And I know oh. that was a particular style of sculpture at that time, um, but it was it was profound. But what happened was, is I was expecting this kind of experience, the spiritual experience, because this is a piece of satanic history. And I thought there was something beautiful that I was in a church, almost like a host, <laughs> like I was in a host developing a you know there is a religious ecstasy occurring within the body of another religion interesting even though it opposes it it's having the same religious experience at the same time i thought there was something poetic and beautiful about that actually a not necessarily that i'm an enemy of the church but we're both finding a religious joy at the same time even as alleged opposers so it was actually a connective experience but when I was looking at it and I saw, you know, if if your listeners kind of look up the Lucifer of Liege, you're just going to see one, he's jacked like he has. <laughs> he has he's he's muscled. He's got, you know, like he's he's been going at it at the gym six days a week <laughs> for the last three years. But other than that, he's got his broken baton. He's got a broken crown. Oh, there's wow. a there's a bitten apple on the ground. He's seated on like this rock and he's chained to the rock. And there's all the symbols of his failure. And, and you look in his face and it's someone who's defeated. And it's, it's a loss. He fought the good war and he lost. Mm. And when I saw that, I thought, this is, this is, this is a guy I pray to in earnest. This is the, the great Lucifer, the great rebellion, the, the figure of power. And when I was looking at him, I felt, wow, this isn't feel what I thought I would feel. This is, he's shattered and he's broken and I left initially a bit kind of 
um, ambivalent about the experience. But as I sat for the uh, for a couple of hours after, I thought, wait a second. So if I can see my if I can see my God in a state of uh, loss, if I can see him in a state of pain. Perhaps then I can forgive myself for not being perfect. One thing in the left-hand path and Satanism, there's a fight to be your own God. Be your own God. Be your own redeemer. Be the liberator. Be like Lucifer was. Fight against. And there's this, there's this push, this massive push. And one thing that we don't exactly have in the left-hand path is we don't have a lot of forgiveness. We don't have a lot of powerlessness. And I thought. Well, if anything, that Lucifer of Liege, the broken Lucifer, is almost like our Christ. And that is, we are seeing, instead of, God, why hath thou forsaken me? Lucifer says, why hath I forsaken myself? So it's that moment of weakness or that loss, quote unquote weakness, because it's a moment of vulnerability and the admittance that this time I lost. And this time I'm not the king of the world. Um, in fact, I feel nothing like that today. And so what I pulled from that is Lucifer also has that part of his symbology and his essence that speaks to our ability to forgive ourselves and to have compassion for ourselves. Because on Sundays, we're not the fucking God of the world, dude. <laughs> we're far from it, right? Yeah. And if you have something telling you everything is in your power and control, it can sometimes be a form of toxic positivity. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. No, that makes sense and beautifully said. Yeah, when you look at these gods of transformation, whether it's, uh, let's say, Jesus, Prometheus, Dionysus, uh, they have, yeah, they have bad days, as you said, bad hair days where they get their asses kicked and then... Right back at it, <laughs> right back in the samsara, the wheel of uh, wheel of karma. So it makes right. perfect sense. And here's a question: What was the name of the statues for the audience? It's called the um, Lucifer of Liege. Liege, okay, cool. Right. Definitely also look called, it up. Yeah, also the other the official name is uh, Jenny Du Mal. Uh, so hmm. the the bad spirit okay okay yep, yep. i'll look it up and maybe post it and here's an interesting thing shane let me know your thoughts i had two good friends who were saying this and they eventually moved into paganism and the sure. reasons were the same and they said you know why because every day i wake up yahweh is still part of my mythology you know i, I left fundamentalist christian mm, to get away from this character and what he meant and all that but as a Satanist, he's like, uh, he's still dragging like the, you know, the third wheel on a date or something like that. <laughs> so what do you think of this? No problem with the uh, Judo-Christian mythology following you around? No, there's, there's, uh, no, I saw kind of, kind of as I grew up and I saw a lot of Satanists around me, I saw them who were initially enamored by it. Um, fall away and go towards, like you said, paganism or just atheism right. or even like Buddhism and things like that, because they felt that Satanism didn't offer some of the more deeper philosophical. They thought it was egoistic. They thought it was material. 
Um, and they they felt that it wasn't feeding them spiritually. And I understand that. If you looked, if you look for Satanism in that Levian, that initial Levian kind of canon, that uh one that I think Levade defied at times, but let's just say the Levian philosophy as it is expounded in the Satanic Bible, you saw this fierce, aggressive. You are a god. You are this <laughs> yeah. world is yeah so on so forth. This wolf wolf on Wall Street kind of thing, and I understood if you take that for Satanism that it's going to lose attraction as you, um, as you kind of I don't want to say mellow out, but as you expand, right. you feed yourself spirit. I get that. However, I never saw Satanism that way. I saw, I saw more too satanism that fed my soul i saw a story of struggle and tragedy and i saw a story of acquisition of power but i saw saw a story of the loss of it and i also saw a story of compassion and connection and something that leads society and drives it forward and that like i said that click of that that catalyst of nature and you know, I was fed spiritually in ways that I saw some people who moved away to, to to go to other things. Now, I get if you have no interest in having that Abrahamic figure, I understand that. But I see, you know, I see the Christian devil as I don't push it away as many Satanists and pagans and everyone else. I don't necessarily disavow it. The the I like to say the buck stops with me in the sense that I'm not going to say, well, that's not me. I'm not one of those. I like to say, well, the Christian devil was an important one. And in that war in the Bible, it's it's a complex one. And Satan has his place. And if you look at the book of Job as the as the district attorney, Satan is the judge. God says, you have to do the work that I don't want to dirty my hands with necessarily, Right. So, and then there's even if you look even earlier in the Old Testament in Numbers, you see, you know, Satan is actually a protector. Um, in, you know, he he. It, it's actually not a he. It's a it's a it's a angel that is called a Satan. It's not a, Satan as a pro as a as a. You know, it, it's it's not Satan as a definitive being. It's a it's Satan as a as a kind of. A, a single type of being. And so the satanic angel becomes a, a a protector. So, you know, even Satan in the Bible, it has more complexities, but there's also, you know, there's also say Pan as this horned one or Kernanos as a horned one. You see in Slavic tradition, you see the black figure at the crossroads. In even American folk magic and blues, oh, you yeah. see devil appearing at the crossroads who can who can understand music and understand us. You see like the god of the downtrodden, but you also see, you know, if you look into like the horned god phenomena, you see it going back to Neolithic renderings. So there is this there is this horned being that teaches us of like this primordial power that language, perhaps oral language doesn't quite communicate. And that God of mystery I see as satanic. And perhaps even further back, we can talk about how Satan fits into some of these originating and first um, systems of belief and mythologies. So 
I see Satan as encompassing all of these things, and I see it as diverse. So I don't feel a draw to move away from it. I feel that no matter how I want to express myself spiritually, I have a home within Satanism. Well said indeed. And uh, going back to Nietzsche, he, and we're talking about Christianity, one of his big critiques of his many critiques is uh, he said Christianity was a slave morality. And uh, what what did he mean by that, Shay? And what was the solutions to this to not being a part of the slave morality? Well, Nietzsche was a critic. He was a critic of the religiosity of his time, and he saw that uh, he didn't very much care for for pacifism. And he saw he also called it shandala morality. So shandala, another word for slave. Uh, he saw it as acquiescing to the stronger force so that it was a way for one to give himself to another power to to control him or to manipulate him. It was a way to forfeit your free will, to forfeit your your drive and your your merit. Um, Nietzsche was very much a, a meritocrat and he very much, you know, it's no mis- it's no mistake and no and no surprise that he would influence Levey in the way that he did. He very much saw that it is you know that the acquisition of power and a and aligning with the will to power, at least acknowledging it as a force within nature, um, was necessary. And those who followed the passive nihilistic uh, slave morality of Christianity was those who would acquiesce their control to to an institution or to a priest or to a pope or to a president. So, you know, that's what he criticized uh, with Christianity was that was that ideal. Well said indeed. And yes, for the audience, there's so much more in his book. I highly recommend it. He'll take you uh on this journey with Nietzsche, Dionysus, uh LaVey, all these different views of Satanism and really put it in a cogent and inspirational way as well. So you'll be educated and uh enlightened at the same time. So for the audience, Shay, where can people find your book? Uh, do you have a website? Uh where do people need to go to find out more about you and your work? Sure. So uh, the Friedrich Nietzsche and the Left Hand Path, you can find it at the publisher um, Atramentis Press. Uh, you can also find it, depending on where you are in the world, uh, it's in various distributors. It's with Anathema in Canada. It's with Miskatonic Books. It's with Cyclic Law in, uh, uh, in Europe. And then it's in different stores, both in Europe and the United States. And if you want a signed copy. I, I have a collection of personal copies that I'd be happy to send out to you. So that's the book. But if you want to find me and, you know, you can find me in various social media. So on Facebook, Chablet, on Instagram, Chablet, Twitter, Chablet, um, YouTube, same thing. And my website, I have my own podcast, deferrednosis.com. Mm. Uh, you can find me there as well. And I have music at Chablet.bandcamp. I'm a musician as well, becoming a with an album shortly and yeah thank you so much all right yeah i'll have it on the show notes but uh yeah check it out and uh, shay thank you very much for coming on aeon bite and good luck appreciate your time and uh 
hopefully we'll have a conversation uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, you know, Miguel, I have a I have a high respect for the work you do and Aeon Byte and the material that you cover. And uh, it's a sincere pleasure to be able to speak so openly and speak so earnestly and honestly with you. So thank you so much. No, thank you for everything you do and enjoyed it. So uh, thank you. And until next time, Shay. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. The first part of our interview with Shay, devilish good gnosis. In our second part, Shay speaks all about becoming the Uberman to become free in this life. And he addresses the concept of freedom itself. We discuss the Nietzschean idea of Apollo and Dionysus, as well as Steiner's Lucifer and Ahriman. Shea provides his all-time favorite devil-themed flicks, and it's a blast. We'll uh, regroup and talk about Anton LaVey and satanic morality in general, from various points of view. Shea will also explain Nietzsche's view of Jesus Christ, and much more. As mentioned in the intro, and as a bonus, beyond the full interview, I'll include a clip from my chat with scholar and Gnostic seeker Ray Ayar, who focuses more on the parallels of Nietzsche and Gnostic thought. Brilliant conversation too, and consider this a mini-course on Nietzsche's useful esoteric ideas. Don't miss it. So please become a member for the full Satanic Panic. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. If you find value in this content, please help grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations on Stripe or the U.S. Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip or you can tip on any YouTube show. There's always the merch store and my Amazon wish list. And consider the Finding Hermes program, where we have exclusive meetings and presentations every month, with many past guests hanging out for high-octane gnosis. If you need help with any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Thank you.